0: Good morning. I am so grateful to have another fast talker around here, man. It's fantastic. Somebody else who speaks almost as quickly as I do, so uh, it's great. I'm grateful. It is good to be back. It is great to hear that explanation of grow and group. Please hear that. Listen, grow weeks matter. Group weeks matter. We want you to grow in your relationship with Jesus. We've divided it up just as Dave explained to, to that end for sure, Uh, But we want you to grow in your understanding of the Bible because Christian people are a people of the book. The book matters. The Spirit takes the book and he gives us faith. And then he grows our faith and he chastens our faith and he encourages our faith and he gives us a hopeful, expectant faith. He leads us, he guides us, he shapes us, he crafts us, he transforms our hearts, which therefore then transforms our lives, through the book. So here's what else the Spirit does with the book. He cures blindness. He comes to me and he comes to you and he he shows us things by means of the book that we can't see with the two eyes of our heads, things about the spiritual realities of our life, the invisible spiritual realities that are nevertheless in operation all around us all the time and sometimes painfully and yet very helpfully he comes and says, yeah, you know, Tom, there's a little something that you're blind to in you. So we're going to see both of those forms of blindness this morning as we come to 2 Kings chapter 6. We are almost to the end of this study. This is the second to last week. We come to 2 Kings chapter 6. And we come to a story in which the king of Aram, which is the nation of Syria, which is the neighbor to Israel immediately to the north, calls together a secret council of his military advisors and says, Okay, guys, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to plan a coordinated sequence of surprise attacks on Israel. We're going to go down, and this is not a joke, and we're going to rape and pillage and plunder this village on this day, and then we're going to go down and we're going to rape and pillage and plunder this village on this day. We're going to kill all the men, we're going to take all the women and children, we're going to take all of their livestock, all of their wealth. All all of their crops were going to do surprise attack here and here and here and here. They plant it all out and the Israelites are not surprised once. So the king of Aram is a little suspicious. He gets, I mean, the way that I see it, his big axe out and he calls a, a leadership council and he just sticks the axe in the middle of the table and says, guys, we have a spy. And whoever it is, the head of that spy is going to be in the middle of this table before the end of this meeting because the Israelites... Are not this lucky. So somebody is telling them what we're planning. And, you know, we've all taken the secret, you know, blood oath and we've got the secret handshake and, like, it's gotta be one of us. And they're like, no, 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 King, before you cut off anybody's head. It's not one of us. Here's the way that it works God of Israel is in our meeting. He knows what we're planning. And then he goes and he tells Elisha, this prophet in Israel, what we're planning. And Elisha writes down the schedule and he leaves his city, you know, and then he goes from Dothan over to Samaria where the king of Israel is. And he just gives them the schedule every month. And so every month, we, you know, next Wednesday we're going to be here. They already know it. The Thursday after that, we're going to, they already know it. So they're ready for it every single time. And so the king of Aram is like, so then if we're going to rape, pillage, and plunder these people, we got to kill the prophet. Think how evil this all is. Don't run past the wickedness that these guys are planning. All right, well, let's kill the prophet so that we can do that. So under the cloak of darkness, because I guess they think they're going to sneak up on the prophet that God lets in on every single one of their prayers, they come with the whole army, all the chariots, All the soldiers, you know, the bowmen, the spearmen, the swordsmen, the cavalry, the infantry, the whole shooting match. And they come under the cloak of darkness one night to the city of Dothan where Elisha is living. And they surround the city, which the Bible says is on a mountain. But let's be honest, it's a big hill. Okay? And watch the servant of Elisha. Watch his reaction. Because he's blind. Oh, he sees with these just fine. But he doesn't see what reality actually is. It says that when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, it's a word of sight. He's like, okay, look, and here's what he sees. An army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And no doubt, these guys who surrounded the hill with the city on top, when they got there, sent in a messenger that said something like this to the people of Dothan. Look, here's the deal. We're not here for all of you. We'll be back. We've got that plan. That's next Wednesday. So we're coming back. But we're just here for Elisha. So option A, you give us Elisha, and we leave the rest of you for a while alone. Option B, we just kill everybody. Servant goes out. He sees they're surrounded. There's no way to get out. The loop is closed. He gets the message. They're here for you. And he freaks out. And he goes running back into the house, and he wakes up Elisha. He's like, get up, get up, get up. You know, like the army and the people, and they're here for us, and we're outnumbered, and we're undone. And he says, alas, my master, what shall we do? And he's going to get an answer to the question in a minute. We'll see what it is. But let's just stop. Can you relate to this guy? I think that's the way we wake up a lot of mornings, man. We look at what's happening in our business. We look at what's happening with our children. We look at what's happening in our marriage. We look at what's happening in our country. We look at what ha- what's happening in the world in which we live, and we are absolutely outmatched. We are absolutely overwhelmed, and we are like, alas, what shall I do? What shall I do? Because if all there is is what I can see with the two eyes of my head, uh, you know... It's game over you know like what can we negotiate like is there any way out of this deal can I go work for you now you like it's over but how does the spirit use the word of God lots of ways but one is to cure blindness he comes to us with stories like this, and he's going, yeah, you know this story, right? Like, I mean, you've seen this. You've you've heard what happens. You see what happens next. You realize that there's more going on than what you can see. It says in verse 16 that Elisha, who, you know, I mean, he's been rudely awakened. Like, he has bedhead. He hasn't had his coffee yet. He doesn't like to talk to anybody the first 30 minutes of the day. Can you agree with that? Can anybody relate? Like, just kind of, let's just ease into this thing. Let's let's slowly, I'll give you the signal and then we can start to talk. You know, like, don't come to me with a problem and wake me out of a sleep with it. Like, that's terrible. This can wait. He looks at his servant. He's like, you didn't even bring me coffee. He's like, look, don't be afraid. In fact, he says, listen, my servant, let's practice this together. Like, it's a breathing exercise because you're doing this sort of panicky short breath. So we're going to go way in and then we're going to go, ah, oh, like that. I want you to hear, I want to hear it. Like, you just go ah, this is going to be good. It feels better, right? Like, this is okay. He's like, do not be afraid. Why? For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And the servant's like, hey, man, when was the last time you went to an ophthalmology appointment? You know. I mean, seriously, like, you're getting a little up in age. I'm a bit younger than you. You might want to trust me. Did you Let's go look again, you know, like take a look at what, because what I'm looking at uh, says there's no one with us. Not that army, they're all against us. The city, they're wanting to deliver us, and basically it's pretty much just you and me. So all those guys on that side, you and me on that side. I mean, when you scale it out like that and measure it and weigh it, it's not looking good. And Elisha said, yeah, but the problem is not what you can see, it's what you can't. He says, oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see what he can't see with these eyes in his head. I mean, you're right. If that's all there is, then we're done. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw... And behold, the mountain on top of which is the city of Dothan, okay, was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha, the idea being bad guys at the base of the mountain, fiery chariot guys from heaven all around the mountain, Elisha at the top. And what does the servant do? He goes, oh, okay, so let me weigh this. So we got all them plus city people over here, and then you and me and God. Let me get you your coffee. It's all good. Double espresso. He recalculates the odds. I think we need to recalculate the odds. I think we need to recognize it's not just a story for them. I think we need to recognize that God preserves these things for us, and he does it, so then it Moments of panic where we're like, I I don't need any more caffeine. No, 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 really, like it will not be good for me. I got the short breathing thing going, like I'm very near a panic attack right now. I'm looking at all of this stuff and it is so incredibly overwhelming to me, like I am no match for what's come up against me. You're right, you're not, but you're not alone. So that's blindness number one. But then we see a second kind of blindness, for it continues. It says in verse 18 that when the Syrians came down against Elisha, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people, these bad guys, these enemies, strike them with blindness. And so God struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. But not, I think, physical blindness. And I think that based on what happens next. So what happens next is Elisha comes to them and says, hey, guys, you're looking for Elisha. Not me, wink, wink, you know. Follow me, you're in the wrong city. And he takes them from the city of Dothan 10 to 12 miles all the way to the city of Samaria. He brings them into the center of the city of Samaria where now they're surrounded by all the Israelite armies and they're finished, okay? And here's what they don't do. They don't go, wait a minute, I can't see a dadgum thing. Who are you and why are you? I'm going to walk 10 miles with you, 12 miles. This is ridiculous. No, no, no. They can see Elisha. They just don't perceive the reality that that's who he is. They can see where they're walking. They're not stepping in holes and turning their ankles like poor Dave. You know, like they're not doing that. They can see the city that they're brought into. They can see that they're surrounded. But they don't perceive the reality of their situation. There's a word for this. It's called delusion. They're blinded, but not physically. It says, and Elisha said to them, this is not the way and this is not the city where Elisha lives. (laughs) Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. Elisha led them to Samaria, the capital city. He led them into the center of the city. He led them into a trap and they're doomed and they don't even know it. Because even though they can see with this, they can't see themselves. They can't see their great wickedness. They can't see the predicament that both their wickedness and their blindness has now put them in. And not just a few of them, but all of them. And and the point that I'm trying to make is that at times, you know, we too are deluded, We're made to be blind. We can see with this, but we don't perceive what reality is. And sometimes we're deluded because somebody else comes along and deceives us into believing that reality is this when it's this. And sometimes we're deluded because we want to be. We blind our own selves into thinking that reality is this when reality is actually this. And in either case, we're out of touch with the reality of our situation, with the The predicament that our damaging, destructive, and frankly, at times, sinful behavior is created for ourselves and everyone connected to us. We are blind. It's fascinating. A couple of months ago, I I got a document somebody sent to me. It's really interesting. It's by an organization called Marriage Helper. So it's typically centered around marriages. uh, But it talks about delusion and blindness. And it gives four phases clinically of self-delusion. I'm going to give them to you, and here's what I want. Here's what happened to me when I read this. I'm reading this, and I'm going, oh, my goodness. It's like it comes complete with quotations of people or things that people say that they've dealt with because they do this all the time. People in addiction, people in sinful relationships, people with bad habits, etc. practices, damaging, destructive behavior. They say this, or they say this, or they say this, or they say this. I just lifted the quotes. I put them in here. But I'm reading this and I'm working my way through phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four, which is desperate. And I'm thinking, it's that person in my family. It's this particular friend of mine. It's this guy that I went to high school with. It's those people over there and this person and that person. And then finally, I just had to say, okay, hang on a second. It's also me. At different times, and different ways, to different degrees, <laughs> to different extremes, it's me. I'm going to walk you through them. Here's what I don't want you to do. This. That's just going to get you in trouble anyway. Can we just be honest? I mean, that never goes anywhere good. You want to wreck the rest of the day? There it is. Don't text somebody, hey man, are you watching online? Because, you know, like, think maybe this would be good for you. You need to text... You and the Lord, the person in the mirror, look for you. So, phase one of self-delusion is called rationalization. It is a subconscious process. It has to be subconscious. You can't intentionally trick yourself. I'm consciously tricking myself, but I actually know the truth. No, no, no. I have to really want to fool myself, and it's subconscious. It's a subconscious process whereby you create excuses for your bad behavior, and here's why, because you don't want to feel bad about your bad behavior. It is a self-protection mechanism whereby you excuse away behavior that all of your life you've condemned in other people and not engaged in, but now all of a sudden you're doing this, and you're in this, and you're realizing I'm running through all of these previous barriers that I maintained. I'm trampling on all of these beliefs that I have had my whole life. My damaging, destructive behavior is hurting people. And psychically, that's more than I can deal with. So I'm going to create a wall of rationalizations between me and this free-floating mass of anxiety, of shame, of guilt, and of remorse That this activity that I'm involved in requires me to continue doing. Because I can't handle the wave, man. It's more than I'm looking for. So let me give you some of their quotes. And again, it's marriage helper. So these are marriage quotes. It applies to addiction or anything else. God wants us to get divorced so that we can each be happy. You laugh, I've heard that 50 to 100 times. You know, again, we're a people of the book. All right, so then let's look at the book. Like, what does the book say? Is the endgame of marriage happiness? Emphatically, no. That's kind of shocking. Like, what do you mean it's not happiness? I'm in this for happiness. Well, then you're in it for the wrong reason. Can marriage be, if it's lived out according to the design of the designer and the gifter of marriage, the author of the book and of all of life who is God, be an incredibly happy-producing thing? Absolutely. Hugely what a blessing. No question. Is happiness the goal? Absolutely not. It is the proclamation of the glory of Christ. It is the proclamation of the unity of God. Its pursuit is not happiness, it is holiness. It is, as Tim Keller says, deep character development, meaning the character of Jesus' development that's created in the tension of this relationship in which you are committed no matter what to each other, so you can't escape deep character development that takes place within the context of deep relationship that is governed and safeguarded by a covenant before God. And as you grow more and more like Jesus through that deep character development in which you're for, not against each other, you come closer and closer together too. And that's the happy place. Here's another one. I've studied my Bible and come to the conclusion that I'm not really married to my current spouse. Don't laugh. I've heard it. I mean, I lifted it straight from their document word for word. But I've heard that. Hey, no, I don't think I'm actually married. I've studied this. I've considered it. Really, does the state of Florida think you're married? Because if the state of Florida thinks you're married, God thinks you're married. Why? Because God has ordained government. And he has placed the governance of marriage into the domain of the state. So, if they think you are, then he thinks you are. Did you take a vow? Was it before him? Even if you didn't employ the language of God, it was before him. He's everywhere. He heard your vow. He holds us accountable for our vows. Now, there's grace coming. Trust me on this, okay? We're going to get to Jesus before we're done. There's forgiveness for all of the ways that you and I and everyone else have violated our vows. But he heard the vow. You're like, yeah, but I was not a believer, or he was not a believer, or we were not believers. Hang on a second. What does the Bible say about that? Because it comes to a brand new Christian wife in the New Testament, and it says to her, and she has an unbelieving husband, that it calls her husband. Don't leave this man if he's willing to stay with you. Maybe you will be the one who brings him to faith in Jesus. Why? Because that's one of the goals, actual goals of marriage. It's remarkable. So phase one is rationalization, which is terrible. Can we just agree on that? Okay, and that's just phase one. You're welcome. Now we go to phase two because, again, as I said, just behind this subconscious wall, subconscious wall of rationalizations is this free-floating mass of anxiety and, and remorse and guilt and shame, and as you continue in this activity because that's what your addiction or whatever requires you to do, and as you violate more barriers and more beliefs and more people, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so your wall of rationalizations is like the wall of a dam. And at some point, the pressure is too big and it starts to crack and it springs leaks. Phase two is called projections. Projection is where the leak springs and it comes out as an attack. And you attack your spouse, or you attack your parents, or you attack your teacher, or you attack your friend, or you attack your sibling, or you attack your church. You attack, you attack, you attack anyone who's coming to you and going, hey, i um, thinking maybe this is not a good idea. You hold it at bay by means of attack. Direct quotes from the document. If he had only done this, that person... If she had only done that, it's her. My spouse never understood me. It's him. You don't know what it's like to live with this person. Okay, you're right. But we're not doing this today. We're not texting that person going, hey, I want to tune in right now. Definitely need to watch this later. I'm looking at me. You're looking at you. Let's change the question. What's it like to live with you? How to win friends and influence people. This is it right here, guys. Because instead of rightly, please hear that, assigning part, if it's a marriage issue, of your marital crisis to your spouse. Part. Here's what we do. We take all of it and we blame it on that person so that we can continue to justify whatever it is that we want to do. Look, we do what we do because we want what we want. It's what we do. You begin to assign, and you would think that this would be a tip off, but it's not because you're blind. It's like these guys, they come into the city of Samaria, the soldiers of Israel are all around them, they're doomed, they don't even see it. They can see, but they can't see. You begin to assign evil motives and intentions to people who have no reason at all to have evil motives or intentions. It's like they've been proving it to you for decades. They don't even have a dog in the fight. Attack, attack, attack. Your spouse becomes a conniving, self-serving, uncaring individual. 100% so. Church leaders become controlling or worse, you disqualify them in your own heart and mind by going, yeah, well, but, you know, I know this about that person. Okay, but are they quoting chapter and verse because we're a people of the book? Your argument is with God. You're like, well, then I need to reinterpret this in ways that I've never previously signed off on and would never have signed off on, but for the fact that i got to find a way to hold this stuff back over here because it's too much for me to handle. Your kids become brainwashed pawns of your spouse who will be better off in the end if you continue on your present sinful course. And even though to the rest of the world your attacks seem mean and spiteful to you, they seem just and vindicated. Hang on a second. Did you hear that? Okay, so you're over here and the rest of the world is over here. Who's right? You start deleting relationships. You don't agree with me? Delete. Oh, you don't agree with me? Delete. I'm deleting you and you and you. I don't even know if you agree with me yet, but I suspect that you don't. You're out. And your world gets narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower until it's you and maybe one other person, depending upon what the problem is that we're dealing with here. And as you delete out here, this gets more and more intense and unhealthy. So that's fun. That's just phase two. Phase three. What happens is that after a while, you've run through so many barriers, you've trampled on so many belief systems, you've done so much damage to people that you do, in fact, love, that this mass, okay, is not just poking through the wall. Now the whole dam implodes and breaks, and it floods down upon you, and then you have a choice. I will either be destroyed by the guilt and the shame, etc., etc., of all of this, or I will move into the next phase... Which is repression. I will subconsciously choose to forget what I've done. I'll block it out, which then leads to phase four, which is altered memory. And every person, forgive me, in this room has done this. Me too. You find yourself in a difficult situation against marriage helpers. So you find yourself in a difficult marriage. Everyone who is in a traumatic, painful, hurtful marriage goes back in time, and without consciously doing this, rewrites their marital history to justify whatever it is that they want to do in that moment. Leave, get out, whatever. Whatever. They say things like, quote, I never loved her. We never should have gotten married. Everybody said this was a bad idea. They were right, as it turns out. Our marriage has been a living hell from the beginning. You know what? Maybe it's been tough. No denying that. But don't rewrite the history as if to say there was never any laughter. There was never any joy. There was never any tenderness. There was never any selflessness and service. There was never any love. There was never any care. There was never any dreams or ambitions or... And what's terrifying about this form of blindness is, again, that we all do it, that we can see it so obviously in other people. But by definition, we can't see it in ourselves. And and not just the blindness, but the predicament into which it leads us, and not just us, but everyone connected to us. Only God can cure our blindness. And our prayer this morning should be that he does. Dear Lord, I know I'm blind to some things right now. What are they? Because I don't want to be trapped in the middle of the city of Samaria, surrounded by my enemies and not even aware of the fact that I and everyone connected to me am about to be destroyed. Elisha prays over the armies of Aram, verse 20. It says, as soon as they entered into Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see what? Their wickedness, the wickedness of all of their plans, of all that they wanted to do to your people, of all that they've done to your people, of all the things that until now that you have, you have staved off by tipping us off in advance so we can get ready, the wickedness of wanting to kill your prophet. They want to murder your spokesperson. And that they might look around and go, uh-oh, I got a problem. We have a problem. That's so what happens, the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria, surrounded by the enemy, their enemies this time, the armies of Israel, and they were utterly doomed. And as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, you can just feel his delight, you know, like he is super jacked about this. He says, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? Because they've been delivered into my hands, and they're completely helpless. They are worthy of destruction. And I'm going to get killed in the press if I don't destroy them, by the way, just as an aside. Like, you let these guys walk away? More than that. He feeds them. He gives them the emblem of life, though they deserve death. Elisha answered, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom surrender to you is the idea whom you've taken captive with your sword and with your bow? you come and surrender to the king, are you stricken down? No. You're fed. Instead, he, he says, set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink at your expense. And then they may go to their master. And so he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them on their way and they went to their master. And what did this sacrificial meal full of mercy accomplished between these two otherwise enemies. It brought peace, it says, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. It's amazing. Two kinds of blindness. I think we are blind, all of us to some degree, to the presence and to the power of this God to whom we belong in whose presence we constantly live, in whose hands are our very lives. And as a result, and I'm really good at this, you know, you get up in the morning and you're like, you just look at it and you go, I'm outmatched, I'm outnumbered, I'm undone. Like, I I can't deal with this and this, this is way too much for me. You look at your life, you look at the world, you start stacking stuff up. The media, okay, against us, all right? Okay, the government seems to be heading against us. Academia against us. Culture against us. What else? Against us. Against us. Wall Street against us. Big tech deleting us from platforms. It's a lot of stuff, man. You know, you, you look at that and you're like... And the Spirit says, and God, for you. You know, I think I can have that coffee now. I think I'm good. I'm going to have an extra cup. Even if he takes your life, this enemy, your God gives it back in the end. Look, the reality is the people of God are winning all the time. Even when everything says we're losing. Because the end is safeguarded, it is secure, it is determined by the one who. No one can resist. And in his wisdom, he will in the end bring himself glory by so organizing and orchestrating things as to make it look like nothing ever good could come out of any of this stuff, and there's no way that victory could be had, and then it will be. You don't bury people to see them raised from the dead. And yet Jesus comes forth. So I don't know, I feel better makes me want to go, oh. I actually thought about asking you to join me in that, but it's okay. If you want to do it on your own, it's good. Ah, oh. you know, like out loud, you can just do it. It's like a yoga class, just, ah, oh, right? Just, oh, there's something good in that. That's okay. I think we need that. But I think we're blind at times as well to the gravity of our own sin, to the fact that we've built a wall, and it's, it's trembling. Like, it's, it's got things shooting through, and like, it's going to give way. And on the other side of that wall is just it's just remorse it's just guilt it's just it's stuff that like if that, if the wall breaks we're done it's just going to collapse on top of us and we're going to dissolve and yet God comes to us and says look I'm going to lift your blindness I'm going to show you that that is in fact your situation but he doesn't just show us our sin he shows us his son that's different It's like he allows us to take the psychological risk necessary of admitting that, okay, beliefs and barriers and people and I have really made a mess of this thing by saying I, in the person of Jesus Christ, have dealt with your mess if you will surrender to me I will let you live. In fact, I have created a feast. It's my body broken for you. It's my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And I so love you here. Come to me in faith. Surrender all of this. Know that I dissolve the mass. I crucified it and put it to death in my own person on a cross in love for you. There is the ability to see. Not just your sin, but Christ and all that he's done for you. So I close with this, two questions. What is your form of blindness this morning? You know, are you looking at everything that's stacked up against you in whatever area of your life it is or it is the media and the, you know, whatever? Like, we're all watching way too much news. Just stop. Just get off of it all. Really, it's bad for the soul. But, like, is that what it is? Because the story's coming and going, but that's not all there is. And one day, your faith, what you see with the eyes of your heart will be sight. will not always be invisible. Or is it the other one, you know, where it's like I'm blind to me. And I've done it to myself. And I've had to do it out of self-protection. I, I have blinded myself to this because I don't want to deal with this. And what I need to do is surrender the whole mess and let Jesus deal with it because he alone can. And he's eager to do it. Seems to me that in either case the prayer is, Oh Lord, lift my blindness. But then secondly, who do you need to forgive? Because that's the other side of this equation, isn't it? You feel like you've been taking the arrows and you're like, man, it's like, no, no, wait a minute, who do you need to forgive? Jesus says, you know what, I've done so much for you. I've done so much for you. You're the non-rationalizing person. You're the other person, okay? I, Jesus, have done so much for you that when my disciples said, teach us to pray, I said, okay, so as part of that, I want you to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Because if A has happened, B is happening. It's not easy, but it happens. Listen to what Paul says. And by the way, he says it in Ephesians 4. That's just before, math majors will get this, Ephesians 5. And the reason that matters is because in Ephesians 5, in part, he deals with marriage. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and do what instead? Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We're people of the book. That's what the book says. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask that your spirit who is here, God, he lives, he dwells in your people, he inhabits your praise. He is all-powerful. We ask that He would lift our blindness. Not the blindness of our neighbor or our cousin or somebody next to us or the person that we really want Him to deal with, but our own. Lift the blindness. Blindness to who you are and to what you're like and to the operations that you have going on in the world that we cannot see frustratingly with our two physical eyes and yet that recalculate the odds, that change the equation, that tip the scales, in fact slams them down in a completely different direction. Lord, let us breathe in and breathe out in the peace that is known by being your child. Let us crawl up in your lap and just know the safety of your arms in the midst of a world that is swirling all around us. Open our eyes to you. Open our eyes to us. God, let us no longer be blind to damaging, destructive behavior, whatever it is. Give us the grace by your spirit to see it in the same time to see your son and to surrender and run to him. Dissolve the angst, the guilt, the remorse, the shame. Forgive the sin. Restore our relationship with you and with others. Go to work and humble us before you, Lord. Humble us before each other. Impress upon us the reality of what it took for you to forgive us. We were so desperately wicked that the Son of God had to die so that we might be forgiven. That is countercultural. And we are so desperately loved that that's exactly what he did. Let us not cast away the reality of that forgiveness or the requirements of it. One who has been forgiven much is required also to forgive much. So bring this, God, for the peace of your people, for the joy of your people, and for the proclamation of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.